Looking around here tonight, y'all tell me if I'm wrong now, but when I look around here tonight, you see people all different kind of shapes and sizes, athletic abilities. You know, us Baptists aren't known for our exercise programs, are we? And if you were, if you were to have to, if we were to have, excuse me, a marathon at church, how many of you would take part of running it? Uh, no, probably not. It'd be a marathon that we host, but nobody runs. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, that would be something that we would, it'd be tough to do, wouldn't it, to run a marathon? You know, many of us probably do not consider ourselves to be runners, especially a marathon runner like that. But we know from God's word that in a spiritual sense that we're all running a race. And when we run, we must pursue the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, we are all sinners. So at its very basic meaning, I mean, meaning, excuse me, its very basic meaning to pursue righteousness means that we realize that we cannot please God in a sinful state, can we? And the only way that we can become righteous is by believing in Jesus Christ and being saved. And it is his righteousness, not ours. It's his righteousness that justifies us. So after salvation, we continue to pursue righteousness by desiring to be holy like God. Because God is holy. We desire to live and be like him, don't we? So God called the Israelites to be holy. Yet while they were at Kadesh Barnea that we read about in Numbers 13, 14, they were punished because they refused to go into the promised land, didn't they? And they were subject to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The rest of Numbers covers that period of time. And because of their unbelief, that generation, that first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, they all died in the wilderness. And so now their children, a new generation of Israelites, have grown up and they are ready to enter the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is kind of like they're on the banks of the river getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses said, let me tell you again what the Lord had me tell your parents. You know, then the question that Moses might have, you know, Moses was there. Joshua's still around. Caleb's still there. These three had seen the previous uh, failings of the Israelites. They may ask themselves, would they make the same mistakes this generation? Would they make the same mistakes as their fathers? Or would they pursue righteousness instead? And likewise, we as Christians, we're called to pursue righteousness, aren't we? So as we look at Moses' word to this second generation of Israelites, we're going to see how we can pursue righteousness today. Now, you see there on your sermon insert, there's nine little things there of ways that we can pursue righteousness. And so the first one is, is that we have the right priority. We have the right priority. So let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances, the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life 
by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may have a long life. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly. Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the Israelites are in Moab at this time. As I said, they're right on the cusp of the promised land. They're right across from the promised land on the Moab side of the Jordan River. And Deuteronomy chapter 1 shares with us that that's their location. And so Moses explains to this new generation that in in verse 1 that they are called to fear the Lord. You know, what does that mean? We've looked at that a few different times. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, for unbelievers, it means to fear the judgment that's coming, isn't it? Because judgment is coming, and where they stand as unbelievers, then they'll be judged to be in in eternal uh, hell, won't they? But as believers, fearing God means to have such a reverence for him that it is a great impact on the way that we live our lives. And so the fear of God is respecting him. It's obeying him. It's submitting to his discipline. It's worshiping him in awe. And so they're they're called, excuse me, to follow the Lord because of who he is and what he does. You know, there are many times that we might wonder if we're on the right path or not. I know when I started college, I was a music major, and sometimes I was a voice major, sometimes I was an instrument major, kind of flopping back and forth, and then one day God made it plain that religion doesn't need to be your minor, it needs to be your major, because this is what you're going to do. But sometimes we're on those different paths, and we don't know if we're on the right path or not. In our life, everything we do, has to be on the path where we fear the Lord. And that is the right priority in which everything else flows. Any of these other, uh, you know, different characteristics that we look at tonight in pursuing righteousness all start with our fear of the Lord. So if we do not have the right priority, which is the fear of the Lord, then everything else will be in fault. The second characteristic that we see here of how to pursue righteousness is that we've got to have the right purpose. We've got to have the right purpose. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. Now, this section of scripture is very sacred to Jews and it should be sacred to us as well as all scripture. But this section of scripture is known as the Shema, which is basically means to hear. And it's a prayer and a confession about who God is. And that was very important in the Jewish life. And so we see here that in verse 4 that God is the one true God. And that we see here in verse 5 the great commandment. That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. We know Jesus 
you know, reiterates that same law, don't we? And so we see this as well, that we're to know these things because in verse six, it says that these words I'm giving you today need to be written on your heart. Think about that. That we know them so well that we call them from our heart without even having to look at them. You know, Psalm chapter 19, I mean, Psalm chapter 119 verse 11 says to, to treasure his word with all of our heart. It, the teaching here says as well in verse 7 through 9 that we're to teach the children, that parents are the ones responsible to teach their children about the faith. And in fact, they're, they're supposed to use every opportunity to do so. It says here that they're to bind, on, bind them as a sign on their hands and on their foreheads. Maybe you've heard of a word called tiflin or heard of one called phylacteries. And you look up either one of those words and you'll see something very interesting. A Jewish person on their non-dominant hand will put a box on their hand and then they'll wrap the leather around their arm like so. It looks like just a leather strap with a little leather box. And in that box is part of the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy 6 is one of those things that's in there. The same time... Uh, they have a same type of leather strap that they put around their head with a leather box right there. And same thing has part of the Old Testament in it. In their homes, they have something called a mezuzah. And a mezuzah is a little bitty thing, uh, kind of like a plate that has a little scroll on it. And they nail that to their doorpost because it says here uh, to put them on the doorpost of your houses and your city gates. That little metal box contains part of the Old Testament that they nail onto the doorpost to remind them of that I'm supposed to live the way God called me to. And so we don't necessarily walk around with the leather boxes on our hands and on our heads or the scroll that's nailed to the doorpost. I don't think there's anything wrong with those things. But we're to have his word written on our heart, aren't we? It's supposed to be written on our heart. So how do we pass on the faith today? You know, I imagine children growing up seeing that. They know that mom and daddy, it, that God's law is important to them because it's right there on their head or in their home. And we need to model that for our children, don't we? That the word of God is of the utmost importance. And we pass on the faith as well, not just by teaching our children, but through the Great Commission, by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, first with our family, and friends and others as well. And so the right purpose then is passing on that faith, the Great Commission. Thirdly, we need to have the right practice. The right practice. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 through 19. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you, a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord your, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, 
For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Uh, carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and statutes he's commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper, so that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord your God swore to give your fathers by driving out all the enemies before you, as the Lord said. You know, when I was in high school and college, I had to take computer classes. And it really frustrated me. I got up one time to seven words a minute typing. You know, whole seven words, you know. But it frustrated me because at that time I was like, I don't need a computer. That what, I'm not going to use this thing and now I use it every day, you know. But at the same time, I've taken algebra, taken chemistry, taken uh, those type of things. And while I learned about it then, I sure haven't used it since I left, you know. I've really not used that information. And so there's needed information that we have and there's unneeded information that we, that we could sort everything we learn into. And so Moses tells the Israelites, it's not only good for you to know whether you think it's needed or unneeded. It's not only good for you to know God's word, but you've got to practice God's word. And so he calls them here in verse 12 to not forget, in verse 13 to fear God, verse 14 and 15 that they're to not follow any other gods, they're not to test God, they're to carefully observe his commands. He calls them in verse 18 to do right, and in verse 19 to drive out all the other uh, nations before them. These are all action words for you to go and do, not just believe, but to do. And so it's not enough that we know, but we must do God's will as well. So Christians, we've got to be people who live out what we teach. We must live the life that we proclaim the, to have. Fourth uh, priority, there, I mean, fourth uh, thing that we see here in, in pursuing righteousness is that we've got to have the right prosperity, the right prosperity. Chapter 6, verse 20 through 25. And when your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, statutes, ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand before our eyes. The Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt on Pharaoh and the whole household. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us a land that he swore to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for all prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. Righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You see, oftentimes we spend our life building our kingdom, don't we? We teach our kids about the American dream, that if they'll just work hard enough, then they can be anything they want, have anything they want. And it's true in this nation, you can. I mean, while we should have goals and while we should have, uh, you know, our primary goal, though, should be God's kingdom. It shouldn't be worldly riches. Our primary goal should be spiritual riches. And so if we educate our children 
about the Lord and teach him about the ways, then they will have true prosperity. As verse 25 says, they'll have righteousness. And verse 24 says, they'll have preservation. So let us pass on to others and for them to pursue the true riches in life with the spiritual riches and not worldly ones. A fifth way that we can pursue righteousness is to have the right position. The right position. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 through 11. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations, with, who, with those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to pay back directly the one who hates him. So keep the command, the statutes and ordinances that I'm giving you to follow today. All right. So right from the start of reading this, you may have had a question about this scripture on your heart tonight. And the question may have been a common one among people is that if God is really a loving and good God like the Bible claims, then why would he order all the non-Israelite inhabitants in the land of Canaan to be killed? You know, in our mind, that may seem counterproductive to God. But we know that since the days of Abraham, Canaanite people have lived in this particular land and have maintained cultures, and those cultures at that time were extremely offensive to God. They were very ungodly. So however, with the exception of Sodom and Gomorrah, God gave the Canaanites over 500 years to repent and reshape their cultures in accordance to God's value. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 15 and verse 6, as God is talking to Abraham, he tells Abraham, so you're going to come back to this land. And Abraham was standing in Canaan. He said, but the, the full iniquity of the Amorites has not reached the full potential yet. And so he knew that judgment would be coming on these Canaanites. See, God's patience and kindness in sparing them that long, over 500 years, 
intended to lead the Canaanites to repentance, but when after all those centuries the Canaanites were still failing to follow God's ways, he brought the Israelite armies into the land to serve as his agents of divine judgment. Just as when Babylon came into Israel to to punish the Israelites, Israel went into the land of Canaan on God's command to, to punish the Canaanites. See, the Canaanite religions were detestable to the Lord, and he commanded them to stay away from them because they were sent, their religions were centered around themselves and uh, sexual activity, and they worshiped idols. And so God chose them to be different, the Israelites. And as God's people today, we should live differently. That is our position, that we should live differently and not like the world. And so God chose them to live different, and as God's people today, we are chose to live differently. You know, Christians are called to be holy, aren't we? And so the question is, shouldn't the world, when they look at us as Christians, see something different than the world? They should, shouldn't they? A person that is a Christian should look different than the world. And so that's our position. A sixth way to pursue righteousness is to know the right promise. The right promise. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12 through 16. If you listen to and are careful to keep these ordinances, the Lord your God will keep his covenant loyalty with you as he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He'll bless your offspring and the produce of your land. Your grain, new wine, and fresh oil, the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks and the land he swore to your fathers that he would give you. You'll be blessed of all peoples and there'll be no infertile male or female among you or your livestock. The Lord will remove all sickness from you. He'll not put on you all the terrible diseases of Egypt that you know about but he will inflict them all on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God is delivering over to you and not look on them with pity. Do not worship their gods, for they will be a snare to you. Now, covenant is a formal agreement, okay? It's a contract between two parties in which typically each party has a responsibilities in the contract. And think about some of the forms of contracts that we enter into today. Uh, we have contracts when we buy a home. We have contracts when we buy a car. When we sign up for a credit card, we have contracts. Uh, you know, when we sign up for a cell phone, we have contracts, don't we? And so there's blessings for following through on your commitment. And there's penalties if you break your commitment, isn't it? And so if Israel was careful to keep Yahweh's ordinances then the Lord would be diligent in supplying Israel with the blessings associated with his covenant loyalty. But as a result, Israel would be blessed above all the peoples. And the Lord mentioned four primary blessings associated with obedience. They'd have increased population, they'd have good health, they'd have increased harvests, and they'd have enlarged herds and flocks. And so in contrast to these blessings that Israel would enjoy was the consequences that lay before the Canaanite people under God's judgment. The Lord would inflict disease on all who hate Israel. He would deliver those people over to Israel's fighting men and Israel would uh, destroy them and must not have pity on them. 
And so as difficult as it would be, they must do it. Otherwise, Israel would begin to follow the pagan gods, and we're going to see where they did. They might fear, but they've got to rest in his promise. God tells us to do something, and he says, if you'll do this, I'll be with you. If you'll do this, your life will be blessed. We've got to rest in his promise and not our own, don't we? The seventh way is the right power. The right power. Deuteronomy 7, verse 17 through 26. If you say to yourselves, these nations are greater than I, how can I drive them out? Do not be afraid of them. Be sure to remember that the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. The great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders, the strong hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you fear. The Lord your God will also send hornets against them until all the survivors and those hiding from you perish. Don't be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, a great and awesome God, is among you. The Lord your God will drive out these nations before you little by little. You'll not be able to destroy them all at once. Otherwise, the wild animals will become too numerous for you. The Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they're destroyed. He will hand their kings over to you and you will wipe out their names under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you. You will annihilate them. Burn up the carved images of God. Don't covet the silver and gold on the images and take it for yourselves or else you'll be ensnared by it for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring any detestable things into the house or you will be set apart for destruction like it. You are to abhor and detest it utterly because it is set apart for destruction. See, Israel was to act as God's agent of judgment against the Canaanites. But this task involved armed confrontation with societies that had large populations, large cities. They had high stone walls around them. They had metal weapons. And the Israelites would naturally be tempted to think that these Canaanite nations were greater than God's. You see? And it would be impossible, they would believe, to think that God could drive them out of the promised land. And so the seed of doubt could easily grow into a paralyzing fear that would create two bigger problems. It would keep Israel from receiving the promised land, and it would prevent them from fulfilling the judgment. And so Moses understood this, so he warned the Israelites not to be afraid of the Canaanites, but to remember what God had done to Pharaoh and to Egypt. See, in Moses' day, Egypt was the world's number one superpower, yet it had, not, uh, it, it had been overpowered by not Israel, but by Israel's God, hasn't it? And so just as God worked over a period of time to release the Israelites from the Egyptian nation, he would do so in his power to drive out the Canaanite nations little by little, not all at once, as verse 22 says. And so it shows us that God's power is greater than the power of the world, greater than the power of the enemy that ever stands before us, no matter how thick their walls are, no matter how tall their giants are, that God's power is greater. Number eight is the right provider. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 through 10. Carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your fathers. 
Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey for these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then, you gave, then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you may learn that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the command of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a land, a good land, a land with streams and springs and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you mine copper. Then you eat and are full and you'll bless the Lord your God for the good of the land has been given to you. See, this is the right provider. And the right provider is not ourself, but it's God, isn't it? You see, even though Moses had sinned, he would not be permitted to enter the promised land, yet he still wanted the Israelites to live and increase and enter and take possession of the land. He also knew that the only way they could enjoy any of these blessings was they must carefully follow every command of God. And Moses used three historical points from Israel's past to relay how important it was to conform to God's will. Three reminders of how God met their needs. First of all, the Lord led them in the wilderness for 40 years, didn't he? The wilderness had poisonous animals, and in that wilderness there was no food or water. He provided every step of the way for what they ate, what they drank. He provided for their safety. He was the navigation for them. Secondly, he reminded them that Israel had no food in the wilderness as well. And so God taught Israel a key lesson about humility and how they needed to rely on him. And thirdly, he noted that God's miraculously uh, provided for people by making sure their clothing did not wear out and their feet did not swell during the entire wilderness journey. I can't keep a pair of shoes more than about two, three years before they're worn out. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's amazing to me that the shoes on their feet didn't wear out in 40 years of walking. And that could only be God taking care of that, couldn't it? He provided for them. And you know what? The same God that provided for them in the wilderness provides for me and you today, doesn't he? And finally, I want you to see the right pride. It's not a pride in ourself, but it's a pride in God. The right pride. Verse 11 through 20. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I'm giving you today. When you eat and are full and build houses, beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes, scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, 
in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your fathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. And so there's the overall warning. Not to forget what the Lord has done. Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget his commands. Don't forget his power. Don't forget his provisions. Never look to yourself and think for a minute that I did all this. But we look to God and have pride in him saying that he did all this, don't we? And so just to recap, how can we pursue righteousness? We have the right priority, which means that we fear God. We have the right purpose, and that is the Great Commission. We have the right practice, and not only to teach our children and others, but we do it ourselves. We have the right prosperity, which is not worldly riches, but spiritual riches. We have the right position to be different and not like the world. We have the right promise to trust in God's promises and not man's. We have the right power, God's power, not ours. We have the right provider, God, and not ourselves. And we have the right pride, a pride in God, not a pride in ourselves. Amen.